And I realized that the big hang up for me was that I just had to get over worrying about what people thought about me. I had to get to a point where I could say, you know what, I would be okay failing and knowing that everyone would know about that. It's, you know, what, what would I rather live with? You know, knowing that people know I failed or living forever with the regret that there was this thing that I really, really wanted to try and I never took a run at it. That's Dr. Jen Heemstra. Today, I'm Behind the Microscope. Hello and welcome. I'm Bijan Sadie, and this is Behind the Microscope, a look at the people and the process at work behind the scenes of scientific research. Today, we are delighted to have with us Dr. Jen Heemstra, an associate professor of chemistry at Emory University. We talk about her career, the lessons she's learned along the way, the critical importance of mentorship, and how she is working in her lab and beyond to innovate how we foster the careers of those around us. Without further ado, here is Dr. Jen Heemstra. Basically, we want to hear about your story, and because that totally shapes your how you approach science, right? Hopefully, so yeah. if you want to just tell tell us, like, you know, your c career trajectory and and why chemistry, also because that's unique from some of the people we've talked to. Yeah, I'd love to share that. So I became a chemist by accident, okay. um, completely by accident. I went to college um, thinking that I was going to go to med medical school. Okay. Um, and about one semester in, I realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, yeah. but for a variety of reasons, I just figured out, you know, medical school is just not what I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, so then I drifted around a bit. I, I made a bold move and pressed pause on my biology major and uh -huh. said, you know, I think I can take a break from this, take a year, do other stuff and come back to it and it'll be okay. Um, and during that time, I took organic chemistry. And when I took organic chemistry uh, at the end of the summer, took over the summer, and uh, they were advertising for people to work in the stock room. So I said, oh, nice. well, that seems like a fun paying yeah. job. Like, you know, night hours, you wash some glassware, you check out kits to, to you know, undergraduate students taking lab. Um, and I thought I, I didn't hate organic chemistry. I actually kind of liked organic chemistry, yeah. counter to what I had heard. You know, I'd heard Which the is, horror stories. Right, and that's funny because, like, <laughs> most med students, like, you know, pre-med oh, yeah. students, like, dread OCHEM with, like, a passion. And I think it's maybe, um, you know, that was the one, a really, really good example of a life lesson that I've learned, that I went into it just thinking, boy, this is going to be really hard, mm -hmm. and I'm excited about the challenge, but I'm going to have to work crazy hard to succeed in this class. Yeah. And then because I went in prepared to work so hard and knowing that it was probably not going to come easily to me, it, it was actually really fun and, hmm. and not that difficult. You, were, you had pre prepared yourself. Yeah, you were, like, I, mentally I mentally, ready mentally for prepared. It. You know, I, I think anytime you think something's going to be easy or, or that you deserve to have something be easy, you know, I found in my life, I do that. And then it, it just kind of goes awry. Right. And so grad school, everything, you know, if you go in thinking, boy, I, I'm going to have to work really hard, but then I know I can do great things if I'm willing to work hard, then that's kind of the recipe for success. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I was in uh, OCHEM and uh, got this job in the stockroom, and then I had to do research um, to get my honors degree, and I didn't really know how to get into a research lab because no one in my family had been a scientist. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought, well, I know all these grad students because I have this job, so right. they can uh, connect me with a, a faculty member to work for. 
And so I, I did that. I was very fortunate to get into the lab with uh, Professor James Nowick. And um, I, I joke that I have no idea why he gave me a spot in his lab. And, and he disputes that story, but I was just so clueless. I, uh -huh. I had no idea what research was all about. What I, year in college were you? Uh, I was a sophomore in college. Okay. So it was actually pretty early. And yeah. that was really career defining. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. and and. It probably just came at a really good time that I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but then I, I got to start doing research and I just thought, I love this. And so I spent a couple of years saying, well, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. I probably don't want to do this with my life, but yeah. I'm just having a blast. And so I just work in research all the time. And yeah. then uh, about right before graduating, I realized, yeah, this is kind of what I want to do with my life. Yeah. And a little bit of the rest is history. Yeah. Becoming a professor was a whole other, a whole other thing. And yeah. that was more of a battle of self-doubt. But, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's how I became a chemist. That's awesome. You, I mean, you just did what you were enjoying doing at the time. And we're like, I mean, you can do this as a job. So, yeah. so did you know you wanted to get a PhD at that point, or did you think you wanted to do other things in che within chemistry? You know, I think once I realized what graduate school was about mm -hmm. and realized that maybe I could be successful at it, then I knew that that was what I wanted to do. But I spent a lot of time really just not even having a framework to think about how you get there. Even though I was an undergrad in a lab with graduate students, right. I, I just didn't even know how to get there. Um, and I thought, goodness, I could never do what they're doing. But then as I neared graduation and my, my mentor and the other people in the lab said, you should really go to grad school. I remember saying, no, 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 I can never get in. If I got in, I would never be successful there. And they kept saying, no, 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 you should, you should go to graduate school. Yeah. And then when they said, yeah, you just, you know, you have some classes and stuff your first year, but then it's just all research all the time. Yeah. And I said, wow, yeah, that sounds like my absolute dream job. <laughs> Sign me up for this. Um, awesome. And, and yeah, off to graduate school I went. Cool. So you went to, where'd you do your PhD? At University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Okay. Um, and so how was that experience? Was it as much of a dream job as you expected? For the most part. So I finished college in four and a half years because once I got into research and realized I loved it, um, I said, okay, I'm just gonna cut my course load way back, take the minimum number of classes, and just do as much research as I can. Mm -hmm. And if it takes me five years to graduate, it takes me five years. And I ended up finishing in four and a half. So then I had a few months that I went and just snowboarded and uh, lived outside of Mammoth Lakes, California. And Whoa, it was, it was a great time. Awesome. Yeah, it was super awesome. I highly recommend that, like a nice little breather between undergrad and grad school. Mm -hmm. um, but then once I decided where I wanted to go and I knew who I wanted to work for, I basically emailed my, who would become uh, my PhD mentor, Jeff Moore, and said, hey, I'm gonna come to Illinois. Um, I really wanna work for you. you know, when can I start? And he said, how soon can you get here? Wow, that's and awesome. So, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. So I moved out there in, um, you know, I think like early May and started doing research the summer before. Okay. And that was amazing. It was, as you described, it was everything that I'd hoped my PhD experience would be. Um, and then August hit. And there were classes. Mm -hmm. And I had to start thinking about requirements and qualifying exams and seminars. And I remember distinctly just having this feeling of, like, this is the worst bait and switch scam ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I came here to do research. And now I'm doing all of these things that are not research. Um, but thankfully, my mentor was really wonderful. And, and you know, the many times I, I said, you know, 
I, I just don't want to do this stuff. You know, I got really stressed out as an undergrad. I really pushed myself too hard. I took that time off and I was like, I can't get myself this stressed out about things anymore. Like, I just can't justify living that way. And he was so great to just be like, Jen, just get bees in your classes. Nobody cares. Right. Like, just it doesn't get matter bees. anymore. Do the, yeah, like pack away that, you know, like have to get an A at everything. And and just, you know, put up with it. Just get through this. And then you will get back to the part that you really came here for. Right. You know, it will be like that. Remember summer? It will be like that again. Yeah. Just be patient. Um, and that was very true. And, and actually, if he hadn't been willing to uh, tell me that so often um, and kind of keep putting up with my my doubt and my frustration, um, I probably would have left the program. Hmm. So it's, it's really a nod to fantastic mentoring that, that I was yeah. able to stick it out. While we're on this topic, then, you, you take someone who's very passionate about doing research, which is what the job is, mm -hmm. and then you have them do all of these requirements, Is there, which eventually makes them, like, more burned out. I think we all sort of experience <laughs> that, right? Yeah. Um, is there any way you think that we could do that better to, to not make it feel like such an overwhelming, like, stressor? Because you do get in this kind of bubble with 10 other students, and then qualifying exams are stressful and all of that. Yeah, I, that's something I think about a lot. I have, I, I think that, you know, there's some things that are probably really challenging to change and some things that maybe we could move the needle on. You okay. know, I think classes is challenging to change because, you know, you the classes do provide important information and you want to help level the playing field for everyone by making sure that everyone comes in and has access to the same knowledge and people come from a wide variety of different undergraduate experiences so it's great to have a mechanism that you know kind of helps get everyone to the same point i think classes you know something i do in my class is that we have a big aim on kind of the professional skills you need to be successful as a scientist yeah. you know how to critically analyze the literature how to think up uh, research ideas, how to write proposals. So that way there's also some really useful skills that, right. that people can take away. Just like practical stuff beyond uh, just... Absolutely. Yeah, I think that the rest of the requirements, they're definitely important because, you know, you don't want to not get in front of your committee every year. You know, a lot of those, they can really um, kind of help you out in that you're, you know, if your project isn't going in a direction that's going to lead to a thesis or publications, um, you know, and your advisor is not someone who's going to necessarily recognize it, then your committee members can actually step in and advocate for you. Right. So that can be useful. I think the thing we need to change is that it needs to not be adversarial. You know, mm -hmm. in a lot of programs, something I'm really proud of and something that made us really want to come to Emory is that our program um, absolutely, did, you know, is a partnership between faculty and students. But in many programs, these exams are you know, faculty against students. It feels that way, for sure. Yeah, and right. probably no matter what we do, it's going to feel that way. But if we at least work really, really hard to not make it feel that way, it might feel less that way to right. students, right. I, I would guess. Yeah. Um, it's always going to feel high stress, but we can do a lot to, to make it not, to try to reduce that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, really conveying that these exams are about everyone is on the same side, Everyone, you know, as a student, everyone on your committee wants to see you succeed. We right. want to give you, there should not be a hidden curriculum. You know, figuring out how to be successful in the exam should not be part of the exam. Right. You know, we should make it clear how to be successful in the exam. We should give you the resources and opportunities to do that. And then we should be on your side in 
in evaluating yeah. that. I mean, that's well said, and that's true. If, you, if faculty are working with the students, that would solve majority of problems, not just qualifying exams. So I think that's a great point. Yeah, somewhere along the way in academia, we got this like us versus them it's mentality versus between faculty and students. Yeah, it's like, why do we have this? Mm -hmm. This is just, it's not helpful to anyone. It's, it's absolutely not helpful to students, you know, obviously. But even as faculty, it, it really robs a lot of the joy out of this job. You know, everyone in my group are my colleagues, and it's, it's much more fun to come into work every day and spend time with, you know, however many, 20, 20 different colleagues than to come in and feel like I have to be, you know, in this adversarial relationship right. and, and trying to, you know, judge people. Yeah, that's awesome. So, all right, but you got past all of the, the stuff you didn't like. You got back in lab. Yes. Then grad school was great? I think mostly great. Grad school, you know, you have all of the ups and downs. I had one mm -hmm. project. My first project worked pretty well. We got a nice um, kind of smallish paper, but, but nice paper out of it. My second project, I worked really, really, really hard to adapt this method and get these measurements. And then when we got the measurements, the results were not all that interesting. Hmm. And um, my PhD advisor at the time, uh, I don't remember exactly what he said, but I think he was very encouraging of like, oh, you know, you've done really nice work. We can still publish this. And, you know, let's figure out how to do that. And we still published it in Nice Journal. Um, many years later, he told me that he thought to himself after that, boy, I really hope her next project works better because <laughs> I am terrified that she's going to get discouraged and leave after <laughs> all of that work and the uninteresting <laughs> results. Um, and it, it was frustrating. But yeah, then after that, uh, I had a, a string of things that worked really well and some nice papers. And then um, my last year of grad school hit, and that uh, was a very rough year. Um, heading into that year, I found out uh, my father died. So I was in lab, and this is like before cell phones. So like, you know, someone, my mom called the oh. lab phone, and I'm literally like in the middle of lab on the lab phone. Um, finding out that my father had passed away. And we, we had kind of seen it coming, but didn't know when it was going to happen. Um, and then when I went home to, uh, to go to his funeral, I found out that my best friend had cancer. And over the course of about 12 months, um, just a lot of tragedy came about in, in my life and my friends' lives and, and extended family. And um, a really anomalous 12 months, I think I went to like, 15 funerals in 12 mm. months or something. Um, and it was a tough time, you know, coping with loss. You know, I didn't, wasn't around anyone else who had lost a parent or very few people who had lost a parent. Um, I, in my last year of grad school, um, my advisor very encouragingly, um, you know, said, hey, you, you have enough to graduate, so just take on a really super ambitious project and run at it, and if nothing works, you know, whatever, then you still graduate in a year, mm -hmm. um, because I had a fellowship that would continue to pay me. Um, but then it turned out that, you know, coping with all of that grief and then going into work every day to just really frustrating, nothing working and nothing working and nothing working, um, and being who I am and how I drive myself, it, it created a, 
I can see how I create a really toxic environment for myself and, and ended up with, you know, what I think is fair to say is, is depression. Mm-hmm. And um, thankfully had a doctor who, you know, was looking out for me. You know, I went to the doctor, like get my, you know, whatever asthma medications yeah. renewed. And he just asked me how life was going. And I think I just started crying. And he said, sit right here. I'll be right back you're not leaving today without seeing a counselor. You know, I care about you. Yeah, it was great. And he just went and made an appointment and, you know, got me my whatever prescription. And then I, you know, he took me upstairs a couple of floors to where the counselors were. And he was like, you should talk to someone. Um, And for me, it just turned out that, yeah, just talking to someone and having someone tell me, like, it's okay you know, I had such high expectations of myself. I thought I have to keep, I'm on this crazy hard project and I have to keep publishing at the same rate that I have. um, And I have all this loss going on in my life. And the counselor, I'll never forget this because it's such great advice. I was like, but I have to do all this and I'm, I'm training these new graduate students who just joined the lab and I just don't know how I have time to do it all. It's just gotten so much harder. Um, And the counselor looked at me and he said, from the things you've said, your PhD advisor seems like a very reasonable and wonderful individual. And I said, yes. And actually, I've never told this story publicly before. So if my PhD advisor hears this, he'll probably laugh. Um, <laughs> but the counselor said, he seems like a really reasonable and wonderful individual. I said, yeah. And the counselor said, do, do you think he really expects you to take on a much harder project and keep publishing at the same rate and be mentoring and training these other students all while coping with all the things that are happening in your life. And I thought, oh, <laughs> I'm expecting that of me, mm-hmm. but nobody else is. And right. I need to give myself permission to um, be human mm-hmm. and to grieve and to realize that I have you know, these other responsibilities that will take things away and I have an ambitious project that might not work and that all of that is okay. And, and then slowly it, it got better. It was a little bit of a rough year, but it, it definitely got better. Mm-hmm. And I, I was able to graduate, you know, feeling in a really good place. None of the research ever worked, but that's okay. So I still wrote right. it up and defended my thesis and was really, really happy with my that's thesis. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so then what was next? What was next? Oh, that's a fascinating story as well. The, what was next was probably my first introduction to um, kind of, I guess what you could call like the vagaries of being a woman in STEM. Um, all through grad school, I, you know, I started to hear and obviously notice that there were not a lot of women in science and especially at the faculty level. Mm-hmm. But I still lived in that place of saying, well, I don't, I don't really understand why that is, because at least for me, it's, I've never noticed a difference. You know, it, it really hasn't made a difference. Yeah. I got into grad schools. I found a great mentor. I've had this great experience. Um, and then I had, so uh, I met my spouse in graduate school. And, and the lab he was in, he was, had a few more years left on his PhD. And so I thought, well, I'll just, you know, postdoc for someone here. I'm graduating. My fellowship's done. I can go learn some new skills. That'll be great. So I I lined up a postdoc. I was getting pretty excited about it. And actually, on the morning of my thesis defense, um, my would-be postdoc advisor called me, again, on the lab phone, like the phone in the middle of the lab in public on, like, a, you know, cord phone with the cord going (laughs) to the wall. So everyone can gather Yeah, just so everyone can, like, yeah, see you having this moment. 
Um, on the morning of my defense, and knowing it was the morning of my defense, this person called me and said, you know, I've been thinking about it, and you know, I do organic chemistry, right? That we work with a lot of toxic chemicals. He said, I've been thinking about it, and you know, you're a woman, and that means that you might get pregnant, and then you'd have to be out of lab for nine months because you couldn't work with all these chemicals. And so I'm afraid I have to take back my postdoc offer to you. What? I can't offer you a position after all. Um, yeah. <laughs> so if you're thinking like literally WTF, yeah, that's, uh, that's well, I was thinking a lot of things. I was crying in the middle of the lab. Yeah. Um, and it was not a good moment. <laughs> um, I mean, is that even leak? Like, can oh, no, you get totally in like a ton but, of trouble for that? Um, but that's <laughs> the sort of thing where um, in academia, you know, the this is something that, uh, you know, if you think about things that break my heart, there's a little bit of a, a happy ending to all of this. But mm. um, the things that break my heart are things like, you know, we have a culture and a power structure in academia where things like that that are completely illegal. But if you go down the road of trying to report it mm. and trying to get anything done about it, you just do more damage to your own career. Right. And the people who do this really feel very little damage from it. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and then you think, well, what would be the outcome? The outcome is I get to, I get reinstated and now I'm going to go postdoc in this person's lab. Right. And why would I ever want to do that? Right. And then maybe no matter how hard I work, they're going to not write me a good letter. And so I just, well, the, the, the great, the, the happy mentoring side of this is that I, um, I walked into my PhD advisor's office and, and I think he kind of knew this was coming because he had discussed this with this faculty member and had tried really, really hard to talk this faculty member out of making this decision. Um, and so, so I, I walked in, um, you know, with like tears, um, and he just took one look at me and, and knew what had happened. Mm-hmm. I think it was me with someone else was like, yeah, okay, I need to talk to her. Um, and this is one of those other things I'll never forget. What he said to me is he said, we are going to make this right. Mm. He said, we can't stand here as men in academia and science and tell you that you can have this career um, and then not provide a pathway for you to do that. And so we're going to make this right, and we're going to create a pathway for you because we have to. That's awesome. Yeah. So again, if you want to know what great mentoring and advocacy looks like, it is exactly that. Um, Man, that's... Do you think, so on that point, do you think things are getting any better? Or do you think we're still, I mean, obviously things are not great because a lot of things have come out, but yes. do you think things are moving in the right direction? That's a really interesting question. The hopeful side of me tends to think Yes. I think that there is, there are, there certainly still are, and there probably for the foreseeable future and maybe forever will continue to be some really toxic people who choose to Mm -hmm. do, you know, discriminatory or abusive or harassing things. But I think what has changed is that there is a lot more awareness among faculty that these things happen. And I think 
that there are a lot of faculty who are realizing what this is costing our field. Absolutely. That again, in a very, in a not so different situation, that could have been the end of my science career. Right. I could have been so discouraged that right. I just, you know, there's kind of multiple points along the line where I could have been so discouraged that I just yeah. left. And it was only because of outstanding mentors that I hung in there. And this was all of my, my undergrad, my grad school, my postdoc mentor, informal mentors I've picked up along the way. There's probably like 15 people out there that have at one time or another held me in this career path yeah. when I otherwise would have been forced out or, or just had enough and chosen to depart. So I think that that's what is changing is more and more and more there are allies in positions of power who are aware of these issues and who are really educating themselves and learning how to support and empower people um, who are underrepresented or just everyone, you know, students in general, you know, even students in the majority group certainly right. face harassment and abuse. And so as these stories come out, I think that there's a growing body of faculty who are all just horrified by some of the things that are happening and are you know, recognizing this is absolutely unacceptable. And we are in a position where, you know, we can't always stop it, but there's a lot we can do. And we have a moral obligation to use, you know, whatever influence or power we have to, to try to do something about it. That's encouraging. Um, okay, so then, so you're gonna, so your mentor tells you, we're gonna do something yeah. about this. So what do you guys, where do you go from there? Um, so where it went from there is that he, he really helped me to, he advocated um, for a number of different opportunities for me. Um, and that was in the form of, that, that showed up as um, one academic postdoc offer. And then also there was an opportunity to apply to an industry job in mm -hmm. town. And so, um, and both of those were incredibly appealing for, um, for reasons that had more to do with the science than anything else. Okay. Um, I chose the industry job. I also just thought, well, you know, at that time, I thought I could never be in academia. I thought I could never be a professor. So I thought, right. well, this is a chance to at least see what industry is like. And this is probably where, you know, where I'll go. Um, and, and industry jobs are great. Like there's, I'm not... Uh, I'm not saying that industry jobs are in any way, you know, secondary to academia, but for me, I knew in my heart that I really, really, really wanted to be a professor. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thought I, it was unattainable and yeah. that I, I couldn't be. So I thought, well, I'll go work in industry. And I think I'll really love that. And I can show myself that I can be really happy doing this. Um, so what was it about being a professor that, that you really wanted or that, or that you saw yourself in that role? Yes, what did I what did I really want? I think it's the academic freedom. It's mm. the creativity and actually, you know, if you do uh, I had the opportunity this year to do kind of one of these personality typing tests and it was funny to look at that and be like, "Oh, that, you know, these different things that it's telling me about myself. That's why I wanted to be a professor." Mm. Um, you know, when I was an undergrad, the thing that made me love research is that it was the first time in my life that I could, you know, be thinking about something at night or whatever, wake up thinking about an idea, you know, how do we solve this problem? How do we do this? And think, oh, I think I have a solution. I'm going to design this experiment to solve this. And then you get to go in lab and try out your own yeah. idea. Yeah. To me, that was just 
mind-blowing. It was just incredible. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it was about being a professor. But it's, it just grows to a larger and larger scale that not only do you get to explore your own ideas, although now actually most of the ideas we explore in my lab are not my ideas, but the ideas of the people in our group. And really for me, the kind of new meta level to it is that we constantly get to explore new ways of running a lab. Hmm. You know, we're always trying to innovate on our science, but there ha- isn't always a lot of thought in innovating how you how you run a lab and how you do things. And so we see that as kind of the, the meta set of experiments that we experiment with how we generate project ideas. We experiment with how we write grants. We experiment with how we do project management. Um, it's this ongoing experiment. And, and again, just that idea that as a professor, and I, I didn't see t- you know all of this picture, but this is what I love about it now, is that as a professor, I can just think, oh, there's this thing I want to do. I mean, we do education research. I never planned on that. Yeah. But I thought, oh, I have this thing I really want to do, and it requires education research. Okay, well, I'm a faculty member. I can just do that. Like, how cool that is, is really that? That is really cool. Yeah. yeah. It's so, like a playground. You're, you're essentially, exactly. yeah. It's a big playground. You know, six, seven years ago, I said, I want to start doing a multi-day summer retreat for my group where we do a bunch of brainstorming on our projects. Well, I can just do that. You know, yeah. I have money. I have money that I can spend on that. So why not? Let's do that. And we've constantly evolved the format over time. Um, we do a lot of things where, yeah, it, it isn't so much like, why do that? It's just like, well, why not? You know, nobody mm-hmm. is stopping me from trying these things. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, gosh, that's just so much fun. That's awesome. So did, did, did you really, did that really get driven home when you were in industry did, because then you saw kind of the other side of it yeah I I don't know that I appreciated all of the autonomy kind of on the leadership and how you run a lab side that was something that really I got awoken to thinking about a few years into my faculty career mm-hmm. but definitely on the scientific side I think I, I I headed into a faculty job you know again mostly just thinking about the autonomy that I wanted over my research and yeah, it was really two things that were pretty formative in that. Um, unfortunately, both of them were pretty negative. So you always, I always like to think I'm driven by like towards positive things. In this case, I was driven away from two very negative experiences. Um, one is that uh, a month, I guess this is a positive negative, but a month into my industry job, um, I got to go to a conference because it was the one kind of sponsored by the fellowship that I had had. Um, and it just happened to be right after I was graduating. So I went to that and it was you know, like 15 academic speakers um, and one indus- they always have one industry person. Um, and the academic speakers were really, really great. And often the industry talks are really great at that conference. I've sat through some amazing industry talks that made me think, oh yeah, I would love to go to industry. That year, um, the industry talk was just not the best. Mm. And um, it, I remember sitting in the audience and just thinking to myself, wow, if like 25 years from now, this is where I'm at, I'm going to feel like I just haven't lived my life to the fullest. Mm-hmm. And, and so again, it's, it's not saying that, that industry is boring. I mean, people in industry do fascinating things. It just happened to be a coincidence that it was a talk that was kind of um, just got it, you know, probably both more with how it was presented. I don't know. I'm going to dig yeah. myself in a hole, so I'll stop there. Yeah, but it was um, at the right time. You were already thinking about these things, and then you're like... Yeah, and hmm. I'd been in my company for a month, and then I was just plunged back into this academic research scene yeah. and just seeing the wild creativity mm-hmm. of what was happening 
there. So to me, you know, in industry, you have huge purpose. It's all about, you know, when people ask, I go to academia or industry, I say, you know, it depends. Are you driven by the creativity or are you driven by like, I could really do something that would really improve people's lives in a very, you know, if you want to invent a therapeutic, you know, industry is a great place to do that. There's a decent chance that you're going to be a part of something that then goes on to alter people's lives. Um, you know, in, in academia, you'll certainly alter people's lives as well. And it's, but it might be more through the mentoring side. Mm. Um, and in return for that, you know, you know, you don't know what, what the outcome of your research will be. You're not trying to, you know, create products that, that directly impact people, but you get all of that autonomy and creativity. Mm -hmm. I just realized like, wow, that is kind of the side of this that, that really appeals to me. And mm. that's where I want to be. That's awesome. So, so then you went and did a postdoc. Yeah, so then I, um, I was at that conference, and um, yeah, kind of at that conference, which is actually at the University of Utah, which is where I started my faculty career, so yeah. it's a really funny coincidence there. Um, yeah, just kind of decided, oh my goodness, I, I have to try for an academic job. Um, I thought to myself, I will probably fail at it, and I realized that's what was holding me back, is my fear of failure, hmm. of just having to know that I was going to choose this career path where you could do everything right and, and sometimes still fail and, and fail in this really like kind of horribly public way. Yeah. Um, and I realized that the big hang up for me was that I just had to get over worrying about what people thought about me. I had to get to a point where I could say, you know what, I would be okay failing and knowing that everyone would know about that. It's, you know, what, what would I rather live with? You know, knowing that people know I failed or living forever with the regret that there was this thing that I really, really wanted to try and I never took a run at it. Yeah. And that kind of got me, you know, a little bit through the wall. The self-doubt crept in later again, but it got me through the wall enough that I, yeah, I went home. I thought about it for another week or so just to make sure. And then I, I started sending off postdoc applications. Awesome. Um, so then you were a postdoc at Harvard, mm -hmm. right? Um, how was that experience? It was mostly amazing. You know, I, I again had a really amazing mentor. So that was something I learned early in undergrad. I had a fantastic mentor in undergrad. And from then on, it was just, you know, there's enough people who do phenomenal science and are also great mentors mm -hmm. that there is no reason to ever work for someone who's not a great mentor. And that just, you know, stuck with me. And so actually my postdoc mentor, um, David Liu, is someone I met when I was looking at graduate schools. And I decided, you know, I wanted to do slightly more organic research rather than biological at the time. And so I, I went and did my PhD at Illinois. But we just kept in touch. And, and he was always so kind and so encouraging. And so when I reached out about a postdoc, you know, he said, yeah, absolutely. You know, we'd be excited to have you come do a postdoc. And I was just beyond excited about that opportunity. And, you know, it certainly, again, had its ups and downs. We, um, the week we moved to Boston, uh, we found out that I was pregnant with our first child. So that was a bit of an interesting time. Um, you know, Boston is expensive. Mm -hmm. You're not exactly making, um, you know, a super high salary as a postdoc. Um, and it was like right in the middle of the financial crisis in, in 2007. Um, but really what sustained us is, is just, again, being in that environment of really great people 
doing super cool research and um, and working for an outstanding mentor who's incredibly supportive, mm-hmm. um, and that that made it a great experience. Yeah. So so most of the people we've interviewed have said that that they had great yeah. mentors. Yes. And I wonder if the people that we're not interviewing maybe aren't in science anymore because they didn't have great mentors. Do you have advice on how to identify those people when you're, say, 22 years old and you just finished undergrad and you have no idea what you're getting into and you're stressed enough about all the classes and everything and, you know, you see someone who has great science that's fascinating and that's what you're going to grad school to do. Do you have any advice for those people on how to identify people who are going to support your career in all those dark days that are definitely coming. Yeah, you are, you're absolutely spot on that there is a huge self-selection that, uh, yeah, the people who stay in are people who by and large have great mentors. Um, so how to spot a great mentor, there's a, probably a lot of things to look for. I. I always say, you know, talk to students. Talk to students when the faculty aren't there. Ask really candid, direct questions. You know, one of the big red flags is, you know, people who, where you have to lie and say that you want a career in academia in order to be in their lab. Like, if someone is not going to support your career goals, that's a to me, a, a big red flag. Um, you know, it is about each person helping each person identify where they want to go and helping them get there. You mm-hmm. know, it's about students' careers, not the faculty members' CV. Hmm. Um, I think looking at lab policies. You know, are there reasonable policies for? You know, do you have autonomy? Does does a faculty member give you trust? Is it? You know, do you have to clock in and clock out? Or is it an environment where people work hard because they want to work hard, but they have huge freedom? You know, in our lab, we actually state that in our policy manual. Like, you know, science works on its own schedule, so just make the most of your day, right? You know, you're going to have days where you get stuck here late because science just makes you do that. But then you also have a lot of days where you have an hour and a half of downtime at two in the afternoon. Like, by all means, you know? Go work out, go do something fun, go run an errand, go home and take a nap, you know, go, go do something fun with that time. Um, I, I think looking for that flexibility and trust, but again, just talking to the students in the lab because um, faculty are, you know, I, I kind of say faculty are salespeople mm-hmm. and students are purveyors of truth. And, um, you know, often students in, I think, labs that are really problematic won't always say a lot because there is kind of this confounding factor of like fear of right. the professor finding out. But I think you usually pick up on some some subtle hints. So if you kind of pick up on anything that sounds like a red flag, mm-hmm. you know, dig into that a, a little bit more deeply. Um, I'll also say, a, you know, a caveat with that, um, and I, I've never talked about this before, but it's something I think more and more about. Um, though thinking about implicit bias, you know, there's women who are successful in our world often get kind of bad reputations um, for being, you know, the B word or crazy or whatever it is. And that's one area where I would say maybe, you know, have a little bit of doubt about the narrative. You know, still do your homework because there are a lot of women who are not, you know, supportive mentors to women or, or anyone. There's a lot of, you know, 
a lot of people of all genders who are supportive or not supportive to people of all genders. Um, but there have been um, a number of senior women where, you know, as I was coming up in the field, I heard these like not great things yeah. about them. And then as I've gotten to know them, I'm like, wow, no, they are amazing mentors and they are incredible people. And they've been amazing mentors to me as a faculty member. And, um, and I'm sure now, you know, maybe that will be my future badge of honor when I get to a point where people <laughs> say those things about me, if I ever, you know, hit that point in my career. Um, and, and that's probably one one place where it is good to have a, a little bit of a dose of skepticism. So I, you know, I, I feel like that's, that's worth saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, yeah, you, you can tell by looking at a lab's policies, you can tell by talking to people, you can tell by talking to that mentor, mm-hmm. you know, how invested are they in, in you and your career versus them and their right. awards. Right, absolutely. So you had a great mentor at Harvard. Yes. And postdoc went well. Yes. Um, On the whole, yes. And then do you want to talk any more about your postdoc experience and being in Boston? I mean, it was just an incredible place. It was challenging to live there because it was expensive. Mm -hmm. But um, but you had to be in, you know, just think, oh, wow, you've got Harvard and MIT and all these places. And, you know, just being in a hub. and, And, you know, I think... Moving here to Atlanta a few years ago, we feel a lot of that again. Really? Of, you know, yeah, just saying like, oh, you know, this morning I had coffee with a collaborator from Georgia Tech. And just yeah, to be able cool. to meet up and talk science and um, to have access to people from all of these universities and the facilities that we have because of that. I think, it, yeah, it's really exciting anytime you're in a place where kind of, you know, the environment for research is greater than the sum of all of its parts. Yeah. That's awesome. But then you went to University of Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, was that in Salt Lake or it's the... Yes, that's in Salt Lake City. Yeah. Um, so how was that? Because that's not a huge place. Like the city itself is not huge and it's pretty isolated from everything else. Yeah, it's, it's isolated from everything else, but the mountains are beautiful and I snowboard <laughs> and perfect. I bike and I rock climb. Yeah. And so, so it's fantastic. Yeah, so that was... That was like my dream job of mm-hmm. everywhere I interviewed, um, that was my top choice. Mm-hmm. And it was an amazing job. You know, I went through a big struggle to get to the point of being willing to try for an academic job. I, I literally, like, uh, it wasn't until a month before applications were due that I finally gave in and said, oh my goodness, I, I have to do this. I will regret it forever if I yeah. don't do this. And then I said, oh my goodness, applications are due in a month and I've got nothing. So um, that was a little bit of a crazy time. Um, and and actually, yeah, I, I just was trying to catch up and get everything together. And I was trying to interview and then you know start my job. And I, I kind of feel like, you know, it's like 10 years later and I feel like I'm still trying to play catch up from that. I feel like I've just been trying to stay like, you know, barely one one step ahead of where I need to be um so one of these days maybe maybe that's just a myth that you ever feel kind of on top like of comfortable and yeah yeah probably never but everyone else came in that I knew kind of thinking oh I've really researched this program I want to have I have these amazing plans and now we're working out these plans and and I arrived thinking wow I wrote those proposals in a month with the goal of just getting a job but realizing they weren't actually what we probably wanted to do right and on the first day in my office realizing i okay, I got this job, now what do we actually want to do? Right. And um, it's a blank slate because I probably don't want to do any of those proposal ideas because I wrote them in a month. So what are we <laughs> actually going to do? Yeah. Um, so that was a little terrifying. But I had, yeah, had, again, great mentors. Just, 
you know, other faculty in my department who were invested in my success and um, you just poured a ton into me of, of you know, just the, all the times I went to lunch with people um, or coffee or drink or whatever, you know, the times, you know, you got a grant rejected and they kind of, you know, encouraged you through that and gave you advice through that, just the practical advice, all the times, you know, that they, they helped you out. You know, one of my really fantastic mentors was Matt Sigmund at Utah, and we would go to lunch. And, you know, a lot of times we'd just talk about biking or we'd talk about our families. Um, but I always joked, I'm like, I get one crazy assistant professor question per lunch. You always be like, I didn't promise that. I'm like, well, I'm going to ask it anyways. Yeah. Um, and it would just be like, oh, you know, there's this thing I'm really paranoid about with tenure. Like, what's, you know, do I have to worry about this? Or, hey, I've got this kind of strange situation with a collaborator or, um, you know, with, with someone that I'm working with or a student in a class. Like, like, what do I, how do I deal with this? You yeah. know, and um, just everything I learned there, it was, it was a really great place to be. That's awesome. So you were there. So you just, that's I where you started, started your there, lab. Yeah, and I got tenure there. Yeah. And then I, and then we moved. And then you came to Emory. And then I came um, to Emory. Why did you make that decision? That was, it was, it, it was something we couldn't say no to. Mm-hmm. We couldn't, most of, actually most of the decisions I've made in my life have probably been like, I can't not, mm-hmm. you know, I went to Illinois. I never thought I'd move to the middle of the cornfields in Illinois, but went home and literally told my parents, I can't not move to central Illinois and work for this person because they're an amazing mentor and they do amazing science. I, yeah, I applied for faculty jobs because I was like, I can't live with having not tried this. Um, and with Emory, it, it really came down to two things. It was the scientific environment. So for the particular research area we work in of um, you know, bio supramolecular chemistry. So thinking about how molecules recognize each other and how we can um, use that to kind of engineer new technologies. Um, this is just the hub. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would be hard pressed to think of anywhere else in the US that has so many people um, doing that type of research. So to have that many people who would really um, understand our program at a fundamental level and who we could collaborate with. Um, and then the other piece that was incredibly important to me is this idea of innovating in how we lead and how we teach. So um, when we were looking at moving here, in fact, over the couple of years that I was getting to know the department and being recruited, um, they were going through a process of voting on what would become a complete overhaul of the undergraduate curriculum. Like hmm. literally, you know, drop a bomb, blow up what we have and re-envision, re-imagine and recreate all of it, all four years of curriculum. Hmm. And the willingness to do something that innovative, you know, right. I don't know how any of your experience was in Gen Chem, but mine was, you know, I kind of joke, I went to college not wanting to be a chemistry major and nothing about, you know, general chemistry changed that, right? right. I was like, oh, I could become a chemist and like sit in a dark room and convert moles into grams and grams yeah. into moles. Like, yeah. you know, we gotta do better than that. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so the innovation to be willing to do a big experiment and, and say, we don't have to do things the way we've always done them. And, and seeing that, um, you know, as I was right about that time, as I got tenure, you get to be more creative even. And, realizing about that time, oh, I really want to start thinking differently about leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to run a lab the way we've always run labs. I want to look at what people in business are doing and try the things they're doing and experiment and see what works. And, you know, if things don't work, we'll adjust. Um, 
And I realized I had the freedom to do that, but by coming to Emory, I had a tremendous amount of support to do that. Um, and this is a really unique place, I think, in that sense. Some of the people that were here, um, who are here, some of the people, you know, just the culture that we have. Um, and, and we have a culture kind of along those lines that says, let's, let's try to think differently about what the graduate student culture should be. You know, something we've focused a lot on in the last couple of years in our graduate program is, is saying, you know, yeah, you have to be a really great scientist, but also we only want people here who want to be a part of and help build an inclusive community. And so now we have a diversity statement with our application. Um, and so kind of all of those things together, um, and I brought my group out and they just loved it. And, and we said, yeah, we, you know, everyone said, you know, kind of looked longingly at their snowboards, but said, yes, <laughs> we, we can't not. Yeah, how's the snowboarding down. going these days? Yeah, not so well. <laughs> but I did run in shorts like yesterday. I know, So, so there's that. So yeah. uh, it's a good trade. Um, so I, I definitely really want to talk about that experiment. How, how you um, uh, have played around with how a lab is traditionally run because I think there, there, there are some traditional ways things are done and there's, sometimes there's a hierarchy. So how are you playing with that infrastructure? Oh, wow. I'm tempted to say, like, how are we not? Um, but I have, I have also in my personality a, a weakness where I will do things um, almost to a fault. I will do them different, even if they're not better, just to be different. <laughs> um, so we try to question everything. Um, I think it's some of it is big thing. Well, I, I will say, I'll back up and say most of the things we've done, once we've started doing them, we've thought, why did we not do this sooner? Huh. Um, you know, one of the big ones was just realizing, you know, there, yes, you need to have, re you absolutely need to have research skills to get a PhD and to go on to be successful. But there are all of these other things that you need to know how to do. And your graduate experience should be training you and, and help giving you an environment to learn all of those things. And I realized that I was really passionate about that, but the way that I was conveying that information to people was just in little one-on-one -on -one conversations. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, we'd be talking about networking, or we'd be talking about project management, right. or we'd be talking about which, generating ideas. Which is how you pick those things up, right? Having the crazy yeah. assistant professor question with, with, with all of your mentors. That's the traditional yeah. way that I feel like people pick those up. Yeah, it's, it's just so these one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, and it was actually, I think, where I started saying, I'd find myself about to dive into you know, a piece of advice and say, oh, I'm not sure if I've told you this before. And then I realized, I don't know who I'm telling what. I'm probably telling people things multiple times, and that's not super efficient. And there's probably other people who are never hearing this from me. And so it's inefficient, and it's inequitable. Mm -hmm. um, and that's both of those things are bad. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, Almost exactly three years, no, two years ago, about two years ago, um, yeah, I gave a little mini presentation at my group meeting and said, hey, you know, I have some ideas of how we want to change things. We actually changed a few different things in how we run our lab. Um, and one of those is I said, I want to try putting myself on the hook to present at group meeting more or less every week, hmm. you know, and you can tell me topics you want to hear about. Um, and that's morphed. I, I initially said one slide, five minutes, but as you'll see, I talk a lot. And so now it's more like five slides in 20 minutes. Um, but yeah, almost every week at, at group meeting, I get up and talk about some topic. Um, sometimes it's like multiple weeks to cover a topic. Mm -hmm. um, like and, professional development topics. Yeah. And, and some of them are really practical, like what you need to know about different funding mechanisms. How do you write a proposal? 
what does the back end look like when we submit a proposal? You know, you don't just write a proposal and like email it into somewhere. You know, it has to go to this person who approves it and sends it to another person who approves it. You know, all of that stuff. Um, so, so really practical things like that, but then also kind of softer things like, you know, managing up and mm -hmm. leadership, self-leadership, you know, managing your motivation, um, time management, um, all, all of these things that it takes to really be successful yeah. in this field. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we just keep working our way through those. Um, and actually, another thing we started doing this year in conjunction with that is that every once in a while, we would read a book as a group, kind of a leadership professional development book. But we just kind of like buy everyone copies and read it and then do a little thing about it at our retreat. Um, and I don't know how many people ever read the books. Um, I largely found out when they told me how much they disliked the book. Um, <laughs> but outside of that, uh, you know, it, it wasn't, again, it just wasn't, it was okay, but it mm -hmm. wasn't great. And something we started doing actually just a few months ago is now we do this as a monthly book club. So once a month we replace that professional development talk and instead we, we you know, every month we discuss a chapter of a book. And so right now we're doing Crucial Conversations as our first book and mm. then we'll choose something new after we finish this one. That's awesome. Um, yeah, because yeah, having dialogue, having difficult conversations, that's like a huge part of my job and again, no one ever trained me really for right. that. Yeah, I mean, it's a hugely uh, interpersonal job that some, somehow in popular culture is you're like a lab rat and you're doing your thing, but, but you're like in a very intense environment with the same people every day. Um, all right, so we only have a few minutes left, but I would remit, be remiss to not talk some about um, science communication and, mm -hmm. and which you, you've had a huge role in, so, uh, and also how that's sort of impacted how you've started innovating your lab. So could you comment on that? Yeah, I'd love to. So it's funny. Um, I don't think of myself as a science communicator. I think of myself as someone who like found the Twitter app and just <laughs> kind of realized there was a chance to say what I'm thinking. Um, well, That's actually, probably... I do think of myself as a science communicator. I think we're all science communicators, but I don't think of myself more so of mm -hmm. that than anyone else out there. Um, so you're thinking about like advocacy and things like that? Yeah. Like all of the other stuff. Yeah. So it's, I guess it's not communicating necessarily the science, but to me, yeah, actually having a career in science is more about some of those other things. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love so, that you called it science communication. I'm like, like glowing inside that, that, that it's considered that. So, um, yeah. So like, how did I get into that or? Yeah. How, how did it? you get into that? And then let's talk in the last few minutes about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, how I got into it is, you know, I, I kind of joke that, you know, I'm not super technologically savvy. Um, you know, I'm like moderately so. Um, and so I didn't really know about Twitter um, until I found it by accident trying to advertise for a postdoc position. So hmm. this thing that happened, maybe a lot of people who knew me and knew what Twitter was just realized that those two things were going to like cross paths at it was some gonna point happen and eventually. something interesting would happen. Mm -hmm. um, I did not expect that, but it really just was, you know, people kind of say, oh, you just like came out of nowhere on Twitter. And I'm like, yeah, well, okay, I kind of came out of nowhere being public about this, but this is all of the things that I've been doing and talking about and my group and I have been talking about and experimenting with, you know, for five plus years. Right. So we've been doing all of this and trying new things and um, having open conversations about academic culture and lab culture and 
you know, motivation and professional development amongst our group. And then, yeah, when I found Twitter and realized that all these conversations were happening there, I mm -hmm. thought, oh, well, I have a lot to say. You know, yeah. Here's this thing where I can open it up and say whatever I want in 280 characters or less, and mm -hmm. I've got a lot to say, and, and I'm going to say it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I'd say that that's kind of how that happened. And also, I mean, gosh, I learn so, so, so much from, from being on Twitter. I mean, I, I probably learn more than I teach anyone else um, or more than I provide for anyone else. So I think just learning from that and then, um, you know, it isn't even just me telling people stuff. Mm -hmm. I, it's like me learning stuff and processing it through my experience and then being part of that dialogue. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's been just a lot of fun because as, as I think about what I want out of my career, you know, what, what is, I was talking about like, well, you have to define like, what's your win? Because there's going to be a lot of things that happen. And if you're going to make it through there, you need to know like, what is your win? Not mm -hmm. someone else's win. What is your win for your career? And for me, my win is to feel like I got to play some, you know, even if it's just a tiny role in helping people build the careers that they want for themselves. And, um, so the thing that kind of breaks my heart is seeing the stories out there. And I hear these stories both, you know, on social media. I hear them in person from students. I hear them in the emails I get. I see them playing out of, of students who are just amazing, creative, driven students who love science and are ending up in these bad mentoring situations or just, you know, aren't getting what they need. Um, and then aren't reaching that full potential or are leaving science altogether because of those situations. And that is the thing that um, just absolutely breaks my heart. And so if in my career I can, you know, move, move that, you know, just like a millimeter, mm -hmm. like have any small impact on a few people, then that feels like a really amazing win kind of outwardly. You know, obviously I have a lot of wins around you know, supporting the people in my lab and the research we want to do. But, um, but yeah, kind of on the social media side, if, if I can help a few people or just encourage someone who's in a, a rough spot, because I know I get a ton of encouragement mm -hmm. from being on there as well. And so if I can, if I can return a little bit of that, that's, that's a really fun thing. That's awesome. I think that's a perfect way to close. Thank you so much. This was oh, awesome. Thank we you. could spend another three hours with you, but <laughs> so could I. This yeah. was this was such a fun time, and and thank you so much for just bringing this podcast to the community. It's it's great to be talking about the topics you're talking about, and there there's such a need for this. So so thank you for doing that. It's been our pleasure. Awesome. Well, thank, thank you. you so cool. Yeah, that's that's Thanks. great. That's all for this episode. Our thanks to Dr. Heemstra for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, or recommend us to others. Behind the Microscope is executive produced by Joe Banke, Carrie Jansen, Michael Sayeg, and me. Brian Robinson is our faculty advisor. Our associate producer is Joshua Owens. I'm Bijan Sadie. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode. See you then. <laughs>